Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Good evening, everyone. The war is on. War on the reckless driver. War on the public enemy on the highway. The nation fights back, determined to drive and to live. Planes overhead on many main highways in a great many states. National Guardsmen out in the Midwest. Every state trooper in Pennsylvania on the job. Illinois, Arizona, Michigan. The National Guard out. This massacre on the highway must end. Bulletin Calendar, Ontario, at the home of the Dion Quintuplets. All misunderstandings finally ironed out. Everybody happy. Here's a late one from Detroit. We missed our 8 million goal on cars for the year by only 60,000. We're that much short for the 8 million mark. And that noise you hear, no, nobody is jumping the gun on the New Year's Eve celebration. It's Joe Staline turning handsprings way down you-know-where. It's Joe Staline saying, you know, those boys of mine in Moscow, they had me worried for a time. I thought they were going soft on me. Here they were shaking hands with President Eisenhower. They were talking peace and talking about the Geneva spirit. And I really thought they might be getting ready to call it quits and not make any more grabs. And my, oh, my, I feel better tonight. They haven't gone soft on me after all. No, sir. When they're willing to pick out the time when the president is recovering from a heart attack to open an even colder cold war when they pick out the week of Christmas and New Year to send a shiver around the world and make everybody wonder whether they've got that intercontinental rocket, when they shout peace, peace, peace and deliver those jabs at the same time, I'm telling you, my boys are all right. They haven't gone soft. And they're not letting me down either. That's Joe Staline's little spiel tonight. And if you've had one possible doubt about the communists being crazy, this is where you lose your last possible doubt. For a week, they've abused, insulted, and thrown mud at everybody. What do you suppose Bulgarin is doing now? giving a great big New Year's Eve party tomorrow night and inviting everyone he called every name in the book. But we've given them something to think about to take the steam out of them. You remember Khrushchev attacked President Eisenhower personally because his Christmas message carried a hope that all captive people would be free one day. Well, he got his answer tonight straight from White House headquarters. And what do we tell him? We tell them freedom of all captive people is and will remain American foreign policy. Straight, plain, blunt, sharp. And hats off for that kind of talk. Well, Mr. Chairman, I make a motion. For the year 1956, with American boys in uniform standing guard in so many different places on the map, and so many homes where parents will not have their boys home for the holiday. And the whole world holding its breath as it hears of a new rockets on top of all the big bombs. 
My motion is let the U.N. cut out every cocktail party, every dinner party, every kind of party on the calendar and get to work Tuesday morning. And work and work and work eight and ten and twelve and fourteen hours a day. And find a way to give this tired, war-weary world. President Eisenhower's plan to end the fear of sudden attack. By anyone against anyone anywhere on this earth. I don't know how many boys we've lost in training accidents because we're forced to defend ourselves, forced to prepare, forced to make that sacrifice. But every cocktail party at the U.N. at such a time is a monstrous shame. Every laugh, every joke, every word, every handshake with the enemy. Anything but the grim job ahead is another monstrous shame. The president's plan is Beyond a doubt, the world's biggest and brightest hope for all men on this earth. Let the cocktail parties at the U.N. wait until it's done. Then those who have to can have doubles. Well, they're picking the biggest story of the fading year 55. I've got mine. The story which nailed down the biggest communist lie of all. The one which said America had to have a war to remain prosperous. You know, only a red hooligan would have a tongue foul enough and a mind diseased enough to say we would gladly trade the lives of our sons for more money in the bank. And when anything cheaper, meaner, more dirty comes, comes out of the mouth of anybody, it'll come out of the mouth of a communist. And my, how that lie has been nailed down. No war and the biggest and best years in world history. Well, I'll tell you one thing. You can have all your pacts and the lies and alliances. I'll take the American way of life as our strongest ally and greatest weapon of all. For as long as we can show this to the world, all the red propaganda is a peanut by comparison. As long as we can keep it up and keep our guard up, too, communism can never hurt us as much as a scratch. Let them roam the earth with their circus and let them promise the moon, let them howl until they're blue in the face. People will still point to the American story and pray for it for their children. This is our real front line, freedom's front line. Let's watch over it. By doing everything we have to do abroad, but remembering our own, too. Remembering our own. We pour gold into the pockets of so-called neutrals, hoping they'll remain neutral. I'm asking you, who'll stand up for freedom in a storm? A neutral you have to buy and keep? Or an American with a real stake in the American way of life? We've got to ring every bell and blow every whistle and pound every drum and hammer on every door in this land and say for 1956, in heaven's name, end this cruel, horrible practice of refusing jobs to people over 50. We've got to search our hearts and our very souls and ask ourselves, what are we doing to millions of our own who grow older without putting away a dollar? And ask ourselves honestly, does a pious, pompous neutral, posing above the battle, except when it comes to getting our money, does he count for more than the men and women whose hearts, brain and brawn have made all this wealth we roll in now? A man, a woman getting older has to belong, has to feel wanted, needed, has to feel he counts, 
has to belong, to belong, has to wake up each day to a responsibility of something to do. You stop refusing to hire older people. You stop counting miserable nickels when you talk Social Security. Stop putting a limit on what a man can do and earn after he's drawing his security. Stop refusing to realize millions of people have went through every sacrifice to save a dollar. I've seen those dollars cut to half. Stop humoring ourselves with the idea that 600 a year can raise a child. Count them, count them, the millions of white-collar people, the farmers and small businessmen, who are not getting their break in this golden year of our harvest. Make 1956 their year. We've got the money. What we need is the heart. Well, get ready to say hello to a lucky young gentleman. I'm afraid I can't tell you his name or where he'll live or even the color of his eyes because, as a matter of fact, he's still waiting to make his grand entrance. But somewhere at exactly one minute past midnight tomorrow night in the first minute of the new year, 56, he'll knock and say, here I am, hello, folks, and he'll be the first baby of 56. I don't know why I say he. It might just as easily be a sweet young lady. I suppose if we had the figures for the past 20 years to show whether the first baby in the new year is a boy or a girl, some people might do some heavy betting on which it's to be either way. I knew a man who put his money on a baby boy. He was sure of it. You see, boys had come first in his family from way, way back. Lo and behold, it was a boy, all right, but he came just about a minute and a half after his twin sister. The man said, well, I was close anyway. Boy or girl, twins or triplets, lucky children. Coming into the world's greatest country and the greatest age men have ever lived on this earth. Lucky children. Long before they're old enough to go to school, the hydrogen bomb going tick, tick, tick and whispering, it's you or me, folks. The monster bomb will compel the whole world to finally wash its hands of war. No baby has ever been that lucky before. They'll be coming to the USA as it goes into what promises to be the greatest year of all. The shadow of polio will be gone. The fire traps in which many children now perish will give way to modern homes. An aroused nation finally shocked by the figures will drive the last reckless driver off the highway. And somewhere a grandmother will be saying, Now look, you quit pestering that baby, you hear? What do you know about babies anyway? And a grandfather will answer, Woman, you're looking at a man who taught you all you ever knew about them. And a baby's chuckle will echo from a crib, and there'll be music in the world, the sweetest music of all. And whether it's you or the man next door or the man down the block, it's everybody's music. And for 1956 and all years to come, when the shadows creep on the walls and the worries come, Remember the words a man once inscribed over his fireplace. I'm an old man and I've had many worries in my time. Most of which never happened. Happy New Year, everybody. Now, Virgil Pinkley. Good evening. President Eisenhower has hit back at the criticism by Soviet leaders. From his Key West, Florida headquarters, he authorized a statement that the United States will continue to seek peaceful liberation of captive European peoples until success is achieved. Such peaceful liberation, says the statement issued by Press Secretary Haggerty, quote, will continue to be a major goal of United States foreign policy. The Kremlin had accused the president of interfering improperly in Eastern European affairs because of his Christmas message. An especially intensive campaign is being carried on by the National Safety Council, state and city governments to hold down the New Year weekend traffic deaths. 
the council predicts that 420 persons will die. And here is the terrible highway death toll thus far for the entire year of 1955, 38,500. I repeat that figure. Deaths so far on the highways, 38,500. More talk and action about Formosa. There was another flurry of Chinese nationalist and communist artillery fire on the coastal islands. And Premier Otto Gottwald of East Germany has returned to Berlin from a visit to Peiping with the statement that Red China is ready to fight for Formosa. And here's fresh word on farm prices. They have declined again, down 1% in the past month. I'll be back in a moment, but first, here's your announcer. 33 years of honor-winning service to his Pacific Mutual policy owners. That's the proud record of Cesare Marachini of Madeira, California. And yet Mr. Marachini is but one of 60 honor salesmen who have been with Pacific Mutual for 20 years or longer. Yes, the fine insurance salesmen choose to represent Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company. Pacific Mutual, a giant of the Pacific, is an 87-year-old name. But its insurance is modern, flexible protection that can be altered to meet your family's changing needs. Thus, your Pacific Mutual man makes his service to you a lifetime career, giving service that continues through the years. And when you have a claim, he's right there to give service that's prompt, friendly, and helpful to you. So when you think of personal insurance, life, accident and health, retirement income, think of Pacific Mutual and your Pacific Mutual field man. Now again, Mr. Pinkley. For us Americans, Monday will be a holiday in which most people loaf and millions get excited about the bowl football games. But it's a far different day in France where the hottest national election in many years takes place. The short but extremely bitter and sometimes violent campaign is at a climax tonight. Arms are being waved vehemently, fists are being shaken, an abundance of rich Gaelic names are being hurled about, and there is a national furor over charges by one group that a photographer paid a policeman to shoot down an Algerian just for the sake of a picture. If you're a little baffled as to how this episode has become the focal point of a national election, I'm not surprised. But it points up the fact that the hottest single campaign issue is the future of Algeria. That large area on the southern shore of the Mediterranean is officially considered an integral part of metropolitan France. This is only a political fiction. Algeria really has a colonial regime, and the rampant nationalist feeling among the native residents has led to horrible bloodshed these past three months. In fact, the national voting won't be held in Algeria Monday because of the turmoil. Algerian politicians are boycotting their assigned seats in the National Assembly as a protest against French rule. There are reports that a major nationalist uprising will occur Monday. The main election class, clash in France itself is between Premier Edgar Faure and former Premier Pierre Mendes France, one-time friends who have become bitter personal and political enemies. Each man says he can do a better job of solving the Algerian crisis. And that's where the photographer episode comes in. The charge of wanton murder for pay by a policeman was made in a Parisian newspaper supporting Mendes France. Its purpose? To denounce the methods used by the four government to put down unrest in Algeria and convince the voters that the regime is heartless and bloodthirsty. The four government retorted that the photographer actually was working for an American newsreel concern. This through a statement from the Ministry of Interior that the Savage Act pictured had been, quote, 
solicited by an American firm for the ends of anti-French propaganda at a time when it was also exploited in the United Nations. End of quotation. American diplomats in Paris are irate that such an official statement would be made. It underlines the considerable degree of anti-American feeling present among French politicians and their willingness to give Uncle Sam a verbal thrashing for their own election purposes. The communists are extremely active in the campaign and hope to exploit the quarrel between Mendes France and Four in such a way that the Reds will succeed in gaining additional seats in the National Assembly. The communist tactics are typical, use of goon squads to crash meetings and break them up while the candidates speak. Despite the furor, there are no vast differences in policy between the Four and Mendes France groups. The former heads a center-right coalition, the latter a center-left group. And over on the extreme left are the communists, still a more dangerous political force in France than in any other major country of the free world. Neither coalition is expected to win a majority of the 597 assembly seats to be filled, which means that France probably will have another succession of government changes such as have been going on ever since the war. One of the best speeches, little publicized in this country, was made by Antoine Tenet, former premier and now foreign minister in the four government. In it, he tells some plain, harsh facts about the conditions of France today. He said frankly, and I quote, The country is slowly poisoning itself, either through unconfessed defeatism brought about by the nation's humiliation, or by a blustering verbal reaction. Pinet goes on, Though France may be equal or even superior to others in inventiveness, she allows herself to be beaten in matters of organization, application, and operation. Our future is precarious. Our strength is neither concentrated nor properly led. Our nation lacks that high order of impetus which we call a policy. Blunt words indeed from Pinet and worth much study by the French. He adds that the whole French government structure is creaking and the country is tired of the endless squabbling among the splinter political parties. In Pinet's words, in the age of the aeroplane, we can no longer be satisfied with an administrative structure evolved during the age of the stagecoach. I wish we could see a solution to France's troubles coming out of Monday's election, but that seems impossible. It is saddening to see a once great country drifting so dangerously at a time when the free world should be mustering all the strength possible. Now, in just a moment, I'll return with my personality profile. In Los Angeles, over 1,500 employees of the big J.W. Robinson department store are protected by group insurance, life, dismemberment, and health with Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company. Robinson's is one of hundreds of firms with Pacific Mutual Group Insurance. That's a point of pride with Pacific Mutual. And here's another. About one-third of these group policies cover small companies with only 10 to 24 employees. In other words, if you thought only giant firms could get the protection of modern group insurance for their employees, you'll be pleased to learn that's not so, that you can get group insurance information from your local Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company representative. Remember, progressive insurance, insurance that keeps ahead of the times, has been a tradition with Pacific Mutual, the giant of the Pacific, for 87 years now. It's one reason why Pacific Mutual Group Insurance, enforced today, amounts to nearly two-thirds of a billion dollars. Now again, Mr. Pinkley. All too few of our national leaders come through the turmoils and pressures of great events with sufficient physical well-being to enjoy the years of retirement they have earned. My news personality tonight is a man who has done just that. Tomorrow is the 75th birthday of General George Catlett Marshall. 
I'm happy to report that important milestone finds him in good health, relaxed, and living in comfortable ease. More than that, he is a man of no regrets, who looks back upon his turbulent years and crucial decisions calmly and says, I did what I thought was right. Last year, the man who led our military effort as Army Chief of Staff in the Second World War came back to Washington on the 10th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. He reminisced for a while with President Eisenhower, then met newsmen. What is your biggest worry now? A reporter asked him. Blackbirds, he retorted. They're eating all my marigolds. Marshall and his wife lived during the summer at Leesburg, Virginia, and spend the winter in the milder climate of Pinehurst, North Carolina. He pushes a grocery cart around the neighborhood supermarket and often lies in bed of a morning reading. No longer must he answer tough questions and make decisions influencing the lives of others. General Marshall has done his share. Now he looks on quietly while others carry the burden. He is getting ready to publish his memoirs, satisfied that he has a way to tell his story honestly, yet without unduly hurting his contemporaries. Still blue-eyed and brisk, with answers firm and crisp, Marshall has just granted a birthday interview to a reporter of Newsweek magazine. One question he was asked, what is the hardest decision you ever had to make? The man who was our top general, then our secretary of state through a crucial post-war period, replied, I think the hardest decision I ever made was to go into Africa at the particular time we did. We were short of shipping, short of trained troops, short in munitions, short in air support. It seemed almost impossible to keep the operation secret. We had to go through the narrow throat of the Straits of Gibraltar. If the Nazis discovered our course, they might move to close in on us through Spain. It was a terrible gamble. As we all know, it succeeded brilliantly. But if it had failed, to quote the general again, a great disaster at that time would have been fatal. It would have wrecked the administration and everything else. Despite the brilliance of his wartime service, Marshall came under sharp attack from the political right wing after the war. Some politicians even tried to plant the suspicion that he was disloyal, a charge so ridiculous that it carried little weight with the mass of Americans. Marshall himself takes these attacks philosophically, blaming them on political immaturity. Although he won his great fame as a man of war, history will know his name for something far different as the author and prime mover of the Marshall Plan, conceived when he was Secretary of State. Under it, the United States poured out billions of dollars to help our wartime allies get back on their feet. This act of national generosity is unparalleled in world history. His role in conceiving it won Marshall the 1953 Nobel Peace Prize a military commander being honored for promoting peace. After the Second World War, in which he carried a tremendous burden in mapping strategy and balancing the conflicting demands of the European and Pacific fighting, the quiet-spoken general retired to his Virginia home. Two years later, with civil war causing turmoil in China, President Truman called upon Marshall as a special envoy. His mission was to end the war in China. He tried patiently, but failed. A period of retirement again, and then Truman named him Secretary of State. It was during this regime that our government began its giant foreign aid program. Early in 1949, he gave up the State Department task. That would seem to be enough work for one man, but no. Early in the Korean War, Truman summoned him once more, this time to be Secretary of Defense. He served for a year, then passed the job on to his deputy and close friend, Robert A. Lovett. George Marshall's name first became prominent in American affairs on the day Hitler attacked Poland. A very junior brigadier general, he was named chief of staff on that date over the heads of 32 senior officers. 
the son of a coal and coke businessman in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, Marshall decided as a youth to become a soldier. So he went to Virginia Military Institute and then on to a 44-year career as an active commissioned officer. You have to meet the man to understand his sheer brilliance. His grasp of facts and his memory are truly remarkable. So is his analytical mind. But more than that is needed to make a record like Marshall's. You must have the ability to make decisions quickly and precisely, then to stand by them. And you must have the basic strength of character and humanitarian principles to keep all your efforts in focus. George Marshall had those things. And so to this man who has done so much for his country and the cause of freedom, happy birthday and many years of enjoyable retirement. And now this is Virgil Pinkley wishing you a happy, safe, prosperous, and progressive new year. Let's all hold our heads high and be proud because we are Americans. Good luck and good evening. Virgil Pinkley has analyzed the news for Pacific Mutual. Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company, now in its 87th year of service to California and all the West, brings you Virgil Pinkley each night, Monday through Friday at this hour. Your friend, the Pacific Mutual representative in your community, invites you to tune in again Monday night to editor-publisher Virgil Pinkley. Now, this is Henry Travis reminding you it's Pacific Mutual time, time to insure. This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. And KHJ AMFM, Los Angeles. The delightful, the lovely DeSoto, your best car buy of 1956. The time has come. It's very clear. The car you wanted is really here. It's delightful. It's the lovely. It's DeSoto. I'm George Fenneman, and Groucho sent me to tell you why DeSoto is the car to buy right now. DeSoto is a medium-price car, yet it gives you value not found in the most expensive automobiles. The dazzling new DeSoto is big, beautiful, and powerful. It has sensationally new push-button driving, full-time power steering, and power brakes. And for price, there's none better than the terrific price deal your DeSoto dealer can offer you right now. Drive and price a DeSoto before you decide. Tomorrow, see about the best car buy of 1956. You'll understand the reasons why. For once you drive it, you want to buy. It's delightful. It's the lovely. It's the sort Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.